We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world from people who think. of Stock Talk Radio. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-host this week is Niall Bradley. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's just the two of us this week, so um, you just have to, to deal with that. Uh, our normal, usual co-hosts are otherwise occupied, so. but um, we're going to try and hash out a few ideas, a few thoughts, a piece of inspiration. Uh, Obviously, the topic of our show here, if you've read it, is uh, Vladimir Putin. Specifically, who is Vladimir Putin? And that's a question that's been on, probably on many people's minds over the past few weeks because he has, in kind of spectacular form, uh, stolen the limelight away to some extent, depending on where you come from or depending on what your position is. Yeah, Yeah, stolen the limelight from um, our, our vaunted... Western leaders, leaders of the free world, in quotes, uh, and he seems to be presenting a, kind of a problem for a lot of people, I think, because on the one hand, we have these leaders of the Western world who are leaders of the free world, freedom, democracy, all that kind of stuff, that's what they're there for, to protect it around the world, but here you have Putin standing up and saying some very strange things that seem to, you know, question... Yeah, he's talking about their freedom and democracy-ness. He's talking about international law and legitimacy and strange things like that. And how does that jive with... Uh, how, can he, how can he accuse the leaders of the free world uh, of violating international law or being hypocritical, etc., etc., you know? Um, so I suppose, yeah. Um, well, I can ask my co-host here. Neil, are, are you... Uh, do you love Vladimir Putin? Is he your saviour now? Or do you think that he is this kind of thug. I think thug is a very common word used. He's just a thug who's trying to recreate the Soviet Union. How could you possibly suggest that he's a savior? Vladimir Putin, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Putin is, um, he's been called everything you can possibly throw at someone. Demonize him. Recently compared to Adolf Hitler by none other than Hillary. Hillary Clinton. Um, we came, we saw he died, Clinton. And it's uh, it's just a really interesting turn of events because it puts a lot of what we kind of had questions about Putin and Russia and their actions over the last decade plus of the war on terror. It's put them in a, a bit more light, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he, we're never sure, is he, is he... When Bush drew his line in the sand and said... <clears throat> You're either with us or you're with the terrorists. Mm-hmm. It seemed pretty clear that Putin said, oh, I'm with you. Yeah. There was no rocking of the boat post 9-11 uh, by anyone, really, uh, not by Putin or Russia. Um, and I think for most people, I think the problem with most people in terms of recent events is that they don't know what to do with Putin. He's just appeared all of a sudden because for the past, if you ask, you know, most people in the Western world anyway, uh, 
probably didn't have Putin on the radar over the past, you know, 10, 14 years. He's been in power in some form or other for the past 14 years since uh, basically since 2000 or just before it. And um, he, he seems to have been fairly, he's kept a very low profile on the international stage. He's always been that guy who's just kind of quietly standing there at the at the G8 or something, uh, or the G20 or something. He's, he's, he's you know, he's, he's not really your typical Western kind of politician who's bombastic to some extent or grandstanding, putting himself out yeah. there and making, you know, grand statements about, uh, about something or other. He tends to keep it all very quiet and he has done. So most people probably don't have him, haven't had him on the radar, don't know who he is, don't know what it's about and where the hell he's come from right now. Obviously he's come uh, front and centre because of Ukraine and we've been talking about that over the past few weeks. But uh, the question remains... Who is he? Where did he come from and what's his agenda? He's a pretty ordinary background by the looks of it. Um, obviously, the number one thing on the CV that people refer to is he was in the KGB mm-hmm. for 20-some years. A bit less than that, but anyway. Um, so, therefore, everything else is suspect. If someone's KGB, well... Yeah. And, you know, but only probably with good grounds. Well, only in the West, though. If someone... Was CIA? Oh, I think they, you would get You'd an be, eyebrow raised. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Kind of a CIA president in America. Mm, who comes to mind? I'm not saying there has been one, but I'm, I'm well, Bush Senior, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, in fact, Bush, Bush Senior was he was the director of the CIA for one year temporarily. Yeah. As was Putin at one point, just before he became prime minister. Um. He was technically director of the FSB, mm-hmm. the inheritor of the what became the FSB, which was the KGB. Um, yeah, profiles, biographies on him are a little scarce. A few academic profiles, books anyway, that are published in English, yeah. uh, don't jive with his actions. They're pretty much singing from the same hymn sheet. Mm-hmm as the kind of line we've heard about Putin in recent years, you know, dubious background, undemocratic, authoritarian, uh, can't be trusted because he's KGB, etc., etc. And so, yeah, well, e- even the in-depth studies in inverted commas pretty much follow the same line. Yeah. Well, you know, any, uh, any, any rep- reviews or... or Articles or investigations into who he is that I've read have all been um, penned by Western journalists, mostly. Uh, some of them by Russian journalists who are anti-Putin. Basically, everything I've read has been more or less anti-Putin. And uh, I also see, um, I also see, always on the right-hand bar of the uh, of the Guardian website, the British. People Guardian's website there that's supposedly liberal and leftist and you know I always see this uh, advertisement for a book um, I can't remember the name of it you've probably seen it yourself it's basically Mafia State Mafia State there you go and something about the rise of the rise of Vladimir Putin you know that says it all I mean that's that's our angle that it's a Mafia State and Putin's at the helm and that's what it is but it's written by a journalist Called Luke Harding, who yes, who became the first journalist since the Soviet era to be booted out of Russia 
in 2011 for, what did they put us? Well, there was some excuse. They said he was overstayed his visa or something. But clearly, they had marked him as a troublemaker. He was probably working for British intelligence. They also recently booted out an American journalist called David Shatter, I think. And he works for either the Brookings Institution or the other one that begins with a H. Anyway, so he's not he's a, a journalist in quotes. The Hoover Institute you're thinking of? Possibly, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Putin, Putin became Prime Minister, I think, in um, 1999, 2000. Um, 99. 99. And he, it was on the back of, this is the official narrative, it was in the, on the back of uh, apartment bombings in Moscow uh, that killed a lot of people and was officially blamed on Chechen terrorists. Do we want to go back a little and just have a little bit... Go back a little bit further, yeah. A little bit more bio. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so um, apparently his family tree cannot be traced further back than a grandfather who was somehow involved in the Bolshevik Revolution, but not, not in any big way. And then his father was a cook for Stalin at one point, and born and bred in St. Petersburg. But, um, yeah, straight down the middle kind of education. On the one hand, he's portrayed as being a, a bit of a tearaway kid. He could never concentrate, but I find that hard to believe because he seems to be pretty, pretty studious. Uh-huh. He said himself, yeah, I'm a fast reader, and he does seem to read a lot. Um, in the midst of juggling a few posts in Russia in the, in the 90s, he did a PhD in economics, uh-huh. which was interesting, but it's pretty typical, I think, for the kind of class of people to become bureaucrats and or politicians in uh-huh. Russia. Um he was KGB right up until right up until 1991. I think he was actually still stationed in East Germany when he got the news of what was happening. Gorbachev had been booted out, and Yeltsin um, took power back in Russia, and he was called home, and. I think he basically kept his head down. He was moved first to a post in St. Petersburg where he worked with the the mayor's office. That was his first civil service type job. And then from there he became... He got quite a prominent post in St. Petersburg that involved... He was involved... At the time, Russia was facing massive uh, food shortages and he was involved in trying to get food in, making deals with companies and other states. This was his first state involvement, um, liaising with other countries to try and deal with the immediate crisis in St. Petersburg. And this eventually got him noticed. I think he, straight away he made his thing, you know, law and order, because... The cities in Russia were in chaos in the early mid-90s. And he, by 
the Kremlin around 96, I think. And that's when he first got a national post. At a similar level of kind of work he was doing, so not that high up or anything. But very quickly then, there's a succession of jobs, and he moves up from one to the other until he's head of the FSB in 99 for a brief period, and then he becomes prime minister. And it, it wasn't, it didn't stand out at the time, not just because of, well, who is this guy, but because in 99 things were again so chaotic in Russia that he was the fifth prime minister Yeltsin had nominated within a year and a half. That's mm-hmm. how turbulent things were. Mm-hmm. He was number five, so I was like, yeah, okay, another prime minister. Yeah, he won't last long. I think the press took one look at him and said, he's not statesman, statesman material or something. Yeah. And he's got a sort of now famous little interview, at least it's popular in Russia, I think. I think it was his first big press interview upon being made prime minister. And he's asked a question about, you know, well, you've no background in politics and how are you going to, you know, are you excited about it? Are you, you know, um, how are you going to approach it? Or what, what, what's your message going to be for the Russian people? And he didn't have this prepared statement that he was kind of being invited to. You know, you're on the stage, mm-hmm. grandstand a little, mm-hmm. showboat. And he just gave an answer like, well, whatever, I've been nominated for the job and I'll try my best. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> yeah. And you could see the journalist was just sort of flustered, like, no, you're not supposed to act like that. You're supposed to lie to me, you know, something big. Mm -hmm. Give me something. (laughs) That was the first clue, I think, that this guy just didn't care much. He wasn't into into the theatrics of it. He was sort of his job, basically. He's quoted in a few places as saying, um, he became prime minister in September, August 99. By the last day before the year 2000, New Year's Eve, he's, he's nominated by the people around Yeltsin because Yeltsin was so sick at this point, he was barely mm-hmm. lucid. He's nominated by the family, they were called, relatives and oligarchs who placed themselves close to, to, to Yeltsin to be, to be president, at least an interim president because elections were coming up, presidential elections, sometime mid-2000. Um, that's kind of strange. Yeah. In a way, that the let's assume he was an unknown to the people around Yeltsin, as he was to everyone else in Russia. Mm-hmm. He's very quickly gone from one position to another. He was asked at the time, and others have been quoted since, as saying he he didn't want it. He actually turned down the very first offer. And said, after being pestered, well, okay, if Yeltsin himself asks me, I'll accept. Mm. I'll become inter- interim president until elections next year. Mm-hmm. So you have, it's, it's a theme that goes throughout his career and even since then. This guy who's kind of reluctant. Mm-hmm. But the conditions around him being uh, elected or nominated... Prime Minister, an interim Prime Minister after in that chaotic time in the late 90s uh, in Russia. Um, 
it seems that there was this idea of a family around Yeltsin, as you said, with oligarchs who were kind of the rulers of Russia or had been for for a while, and uh, Putin was seen as a a kind of guy they could trust, right? He basically threw his lot in with them and you know towed the line, did what they wanted wanted him to do, yeah. And they figured, okay, here's a guy we can uh, we can rely on. He wasn't completely unknown. He had kind of made a name for himself in Saint Petersburg. Yeah, no nonsense. But not necessarily as a politician or anything. No, as a country. good manager. Exactly. Crisis manager. Yeah. And, I mean, I should note here that the, several of these oligarchs that were around Yeltsin and that were in control of Russia, really, at the time, um, they included people like uh, Boris Berezovsky, mm-hmm. who has since become, uh, well, he's dead now, he died last year, but he for since, uh, I think since you know, the 2002 or something, he, uh, he's he been Putin's arch enemy. Um, but the reason I mention him is because he figures prominently throughout that whole era of Putin's era type thing, uh, mostly in exile in the UK. Uh, but he, as one of these uh, oligarchs, and it ties into the idea that after, a short while after Putin became prime minister and then, and then through his kind of switching between prime minister and president, he very quickly decided to, now that he had the reins of power, he decided to basically get rid of a lot of these guys who were the kind of the most corrupt among them, you know. Uh, if he was taking on the mantle of uh, being the president or the prime minister of um, of Russia, he was going to kind of do it his way. And he very quickly came into conflict with, conflict with some of these yeah. oligarchs. And he basically booted them out. He he imprisoned, eventually imprisoned Khodorkovsky, 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 yeah, Khodorkovsky, and um, and several others uh, fled to Israel because a lot of them had Jewish ties and mm-hmm. kind of dual Israeli-Russian uh, citizenship. Yeah. The Chernoy brothers fled. A guy called Guginsky or Guginsky. He was a media mogul who had actually been a rival of Berezovsky's through the 90s, but who teamed up with him mm-hmm. to secure Yeltsin's re-election in 1996. Mm-hmm. And that was an important oligarch partnership, mm-hmm. Berezovsky and Gudzinski. Mm-hmm. Um, so so they yep. can't, the impression I'm getting here is that uh, Putin was taken uh, in by this group of oligarchs who had basically looted and consolidated their their wealth and their control over Russia after the fall with the, the, the breakup of the Soviet Union and then they were looking for someone to kind of be the president or prime minister and they could <clears throat> they could control things behind the scenes and in brief uh, Putin kind of did a bit of a switcheroo on them and uh, I, he basically gave them a, a choice, kind of you're with me or against me type of thing and they're the ones that uh, weren't going to go with that deal were were expelled, and many of them then led the attacks against Putin throughout the past uh, ten or twelve years. But there's a in the official history there's a founding kind of uh, in terms of those who are anti-Putin. The foundational kind of criticism against him is that he, as a former head of the FSB, was somehow involved mm. in the Moscow. Apartment bombings in 1989, <clears throat> um, and these were a series of explosions that had four apartment blocks in 
uh, it wasn't just Moscow in, in several Russian cities, uh, including Moscow, and killed 293 people and injured 651. Uh, now, there's been a lot of allegations and freely put out there by the Western media that this was an inside job, essentially, and that Putin was somehow involved in it. And that the, 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 the simplistic narrative is that just you know, have a few bombings around the country, blame them on terrorists, and then therefore you're, you facilitate the rise of some strong man, dictator into power, i.e. that is Putin, supposedly. <clears throat> but there is there's problems with that idea, that theory, uh, because put, play, putting Putin in the middle of it, as in he was responsible for it to, to facilitate his own rise, doesn't jive with the idea that Putin was essentially selected by those who were in control mm. to, to be prime minister. Uh, therefore, if there's anybody in control to carry out this kind of a false flag attack inside Russia, then it's not necessarily Putin. It's the people, because he was fairly new on the scene at that point. And, um, yeah, he wouldn't have had control of the media, for example, by then. In order for it to be a false flag bombing, there's got to be a media campaign that has got the right script mm-hmm. to play after and during the course of it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and how, for whatever purposes those bombings were contrived, assuming they were, there's no point in doing it unless you're getting the right story out that, you know, you wanted to get out. Mm. In this case, of course, they're, they're blaming Chechen terrorists, mm-hmm. um, which had recently flared up again. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the first Chechen war in the mid-90s. There was a breakaway separatist movement in Chechnya, way down in the south of Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of dealt with by Yeltsin at the time. Not really, though. And then you've got the series of bombings mm-hmm. blamed on Chechen terrorists. Putin becomes prime minister, says, I'm going to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And launched a war. And he launched a full scale, yeah, and they absolutely obliterated Chechnya. Mm-hmm. Um, which certainly got him a lot of criticism. Now, yeah. is that the end of the story? Well, it. Well, see, looking back, something happened after that that kind of points to something else going on. When Putin says, it seems that when Putin says, I'm going to deal with this, he really means it. Mm-hmm. He will actually go after. Mm. For, for example, contrast with Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. The Americans pretend Bin Laden is still alive for 15 years because, of course, he just, they're aware. They need he, him. He, he's just cover for what they mm-hmm. really want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they make a show of pretending that they killed him and dumped him at sea. Yeah. Putin was different. He was like, oh, we've got terrorists. Oh, okay, well, I'm going to deal with it. Yeah, he was just being exactly. straight up about it and, and honest about it. Chechnya, by the way, was subsequently completely rebuilt mm-hmm. within two years. Yeah. The Russian, I mean, Russian government pumped billions into the place. It was so successful, there is now no longer a separatist movement in Chechnya. Yeah, anything that's the actually, really active. Actually, yeah. it's, it's solved, basically. Yeah. They've all sh- sh- shook hands and, 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 and declared peace, basically, uh, between them and Russia, yeah. and, they're fo- and they're still part of a, officially a part of the Russian Federation. So, uh, I mean, that's the way to deal with actual terrorism. Okay, if somebody says, we're terrorists and we're going to bomb Russia, if you don't do this, well, then you go and negotiate, and you will be able to find some kind of a... Uh, common ground and a way to, to sort the problem out. Unlike America, who wants to have this unending war against terrorists, because they can't negotiate with terrorists, right? That's what they've always said. We don't negotiate with terrorists. We just chase them around the world 
uh, like something out of a kind of bad kind of, you know, 1950s British comedy movie, <clears throat> you know, this funny soundtrack to it, chasing them around the world, uh, but and in the process, obviously, getting access to different countries by saying, oh, you've got a terrorist problem, let me help you with that. And then they go, and mm-hmm. then, but the terrorists are never defeated. The terrorists are always there because you can use them to chase them around. But Putin, on the other hand, says, okay, terrorists, let's go and deal with them. Let's, you know, if they're not willing to negotiate, let's uh, use military means. And then, and we'll be fair afterwards, like you said, they have actually rebuilt the, uh, Grozny is, you know, compared to what it was after several of these wars, uh, it's actually, been, it has been rebuilt, if anybody wants to look into that. But, one of the things about the, in terms of the apartment bombings that supposedly put Putin in power, there's you know there was a film out called Assassination of Russia, and it supported uh, <clears throat> the idea that Russian intelligence was behind it, and you know pointed the finger at Putin, etc. But uh, there's a an advisor to the Russian government who, for what it's worth, has said that um, I thought it was interesting actually. He said that the film was a a well-made professional example of the propagandist and psychological war that Boris Berezovsky is notoriously good at. So, you know, the question here is, in terms of these apartment bombings and and the other bombings that have happened since then um, in Russia, against Russia by supposed Chechen kind of terrorists, the question is, are they genuine Chechen terrorists or are they being directed by someone else? You know, it's maybe not black, so black and white. Maybe there was these kind of oligarchs, including this guy Berezovsky, at the time in 1999, who decided that, you know, we're going to have some bombings because we want to, uh, we want to kind of inflame the population up, get them worried, get them, get them afraid, get on board with this terrorism business, and uh, use that to our benefit uh, in terms of control in various different ways. And they may have been behind it, and they maybe used the FSB in some way, not necessarily Putin, used the FSB to be, or certain elements of the FSB, to be complicit in this. So it wasn't Chechen terrorists in, in, in 1999. But then the other question is, there's obviously evidence that Western powers have used uh, the Chechen terrorism and funded it, uh, they've been involved in it, as a way to attack Russia since then. So the question is, do we separate the apartment bombings out and say that was an internal Russian thing as a, a way that the Americans kind of used terrorism to, to further their own aims, but then afterwards it was co-opted by Western powers to attack Russia. And I'm speaking here of the, uh, like the Bezlan, uh school hostage crisis when hundreds of people were killed, including hundreds of school children. And, um, and then later, uh, several Moscow, two at least Moscow metro bombings and... Um, And it was the third one. Um, Beslan was, well, was a theater. The theater shooting, theater. The theater yeah. shooting into, uh, that was where people, people were taken hostage by these Chechens mm-hmm. in the theater in Moscow, and many people died then when they were... And Putin hostage. was criticized for those two major hostage-taking scenarios, the Mo- Moscow school uh, theater and the Beslan school. Mm-hmm. He was criticized in the West because of the way he did it. Mm. He, he, he did negotiate. and said, well, what do you want? Um... Basically, we want Chechnya free. We want all our colleagues who are in jail released immediately. And he said, well, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sent people in and they started shooting them. Mm-hmm. And it led to many deaths. Now, in the Western narrative, 
sort of their way of dealing with these situations is whatever you do, don't bring about a situation where many people die because you'll lose public support. Putin actually, his public support increased because of the way he dealt with it. Mm. No nonsense. I think it, people like that. Yeah. It's not the other way around, you know? Yeah. So the thing that, the thing that um, makes me suspicious of the whole Chechen, etc., terrorism kind of situation is this claim of an uh, emirate of the Caucasus, the Caucasus region that certain groups have aspired to, certain terrorists, let's say, groups have aspired to in terms of uh, freedom for, these, for this area, which is basically between, if you include all of the areas that supposedly want independence from Russia, it, it includes them um, from kind of sea to sea, from the Black Sea to the Caspian Sea, straight across the bottom of of Russia there, there's Russia's final kind of territorial border, but just above Georgia. Just north of the Caucasus. Caucasus yeah, yeah, just above Georgia. And, uh, so, I mean, for that to be taken away from, from Russia and, you know, maybe as we're seeing now, Crimea to be taken away, that would leave, that would pretty much leave Russia without any real access to the Black Sea. And the Black Sea is very important for Russia because it gives it access to the Mediterranean. For its, for its uh, military or navy and, and even commercial shipping, so I mean, and that's a big thing. It's not just about military uh, shipping in in uh, our, the military base in the Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol in in Crimea. It's also the, the access to that sea for commercial shipping, and it's almost immediate kind of access to the Mediterranean for Russia as well, you know, so it's commercial as well as the military, people don't seem to be mentioning the commercial aspect of it, but just taking away that whole part of uh, southern Russia from Russia would be a pretty devastating blow geopolitically uh, and economically for for Russians and, and for the Russian government and that's where I'm suspicious of these terrorists mm-hmm. and the evidence that there is that the U.S. has been involved in backing them and funding them and stuff because yeah. it's in their interest to take that away from it's, Russia, to screw Russia over, basically. It's probably a safe bet to, to, to go with your theory there because it, it was a separatist movement and it came out of the fall of the USSR. Mm-hmm. So this was one among everyone else. Yeah. They said, well, all the old nations are getting their nationhood status back. We would like to be a nation too. Mm-hmm. That was an actual nationalist movement. But by the time it became what it became a decade ago, mm-hmm. it was this jihadist, extremist, Wahhabi, mm-hmm. Muslim. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, suddenly there are all these, I mean, they're white, often red-bearded <laughs> yeah. Caucasian guys. Oh, yeah, yeah, hey, jihad. And they have the Al-Qaeda flag. And now their mission isn't to free Grozny and, and, and Chechnya as, as a nation state. Now their mission is something totally outlandish, would never happen anyway. They wanted to unite all of those regions, Dagestan, uh, another one that begins with an I, Chechnya, and even a part of Georgia. Uh-huh. You can see where that's going, because that would inflame Georgian-Russian relations again, which did actually happen in 2008. So there's this insane um, idea that was introduced that all these little um, smaller provinces, basically, but they're called republics, would become the... Emir of the Caucasus, or some, some mm-hmm. invented name. Mm-hmm. There is no popular support for it. This is not a nationalist movement at all. It's certainly not kind of Wahhabism. 
if you know what I mean, but the Wahhabism that, that it has become that has informed these terrorists, these jihadis, basically, because that comes directly from Saudi Arabia and it's exported from Saudi Arabia with the help or the, at the behest of the Americans. Uh, and that's basically their, your seat of, of jihadi terrorism in terms of training, funding, and, and a lot of people comes from Saudi Arabia as yeah. a proxy for the U.S. So when you see that jihadi, Muslim, fundi Muslim stuff springing up in places where you say, well, how did they get there? Well, yeah, how did they get there is the question. They were imported, you know. Um, so it's not natural is what we're saying. It's not natural to the kind of region, not natural to even human nature in a certain sense. But you see, as we've been saying, that Putin has been able to kind of neutralize that in the sense of just facing it head on and saying, okay, you're terrorists, what do you want? I mean, you're, gonna, you're threatening to blow up mm. uh, half of Russia. What can we do to solve this problem? And he's been able to fo- solve the problem. Yeah. If, if, it was in, if it was in any way as dangerous as the region was in the 90s, there is no way it would have had the Winter Olympics just take place right next door in Sochi. Yeah. As just happened. Um, before we get back to the Saudis, maybe we should just... I, I want to just make note of some other... Obviously, it's a big, complicated issue, but we're just trying to hit the high note. So, 9-11 happens, and Putin, it seems, you know, like everyone else, except that, oh, holy, holy Moses, somebody did this to America, and... Uh, got behind, got on board, and he was one of the first to say, look, whatever you need will help. And the U.S. got an airbase, the lease for an airbase, in Kyrgyzstan, which wouldn't have been possible without Moscow support. So, there was in Afghanistan, so Putin was on board with that. Um, but after 9-11... Everything that came after that, they're starting to see he's more and more putting his foot down. You said earlier that, well, it's only been more recently that um, we've become more aware of Putin. But actually, if you go back and look at some of the things he said at the time, which were never, of course, shown too widely, you'll see that there's a pattern to his um, behavior regarding the United States. The Iraq War, Putin was against that. Mm-hmm. The only reason it, I think I've already mentioned it on a previous show, but I'll just recap. The only reason they dropped their phony attempt to get UN sanctioning uh, resolution approved was because Putin had got then Chancellor Schroeder and President Chirac of France to, in a little alliance, yeah. to said, "No, we won't support it unless you can." Provide reasonable evidence that yeah. he does have WMDs. Mm. When everybody knew and it. so they just went in unilateral. And I think that might have pissed somebody off. Because if you think about it, you he think? forced their hand there. He, he said, okay, well, if what you're doing is legit, show it. And as a result, they said, well, we can't. So well, we're, just, defining, we're just going ahead. That was a defining moment in recent, in, in recent yeah. modern American history in the sense that America was made, was forced by Russia, essentially, okay, with Germany and France as well, forced to wage an illegal war that will go down in history as yeah. is officially recorded as an illegal war when all they wanted was just them to agree to it and then it could be all legal and nobody would ever say anything bad about America. And, uh, I mean, obviously they didn't care and they went ahead anyway because they were so committed to it because of our grand chessboard plan. But it probably, like you say, yeah, really pissed them off. Um, 
And I think it was after Iraq and him seeing Putin, seeing them doing this, and then in subsequent, seeing what was going on in Iraq, and then in recent years, the kind of uh, regime changes that they've been engaged in, which are part of a long history of American regime changes, but in, in terms of the modern era, in the, in the 2000s, let's say, I'm sure Putin has been watching that very closely and has seen uh, what the Americans have been doing and the way they've been doing it. Um, you know, in, in, the, in the Arab Spring, uh, specifically in Libya, uh, where, they, where they bombed Libya, they bombed... <laughs> The Arab Spring was brought, brought to Libya by NATO bombs. NATO bombs, so, uh, you know, that's how uh, independent it was. And then in Syria, more recently, <clears throat> somewhere along the line there, probably quite a long time ago, he figured out, well, this is, you know, how far are these people going to go with this, you know? And he sees it moving, you know, he always probably has in his mind the idea that it's going to come to his borders. And in particular, uh, with the... Uh, evidence of U.S. funding for Chechnya and terrorists, and quote, um, he probably realized that it had already been attempted uh, at Russia's borders. In he the has dropped a number of... There are a lot of speech snippets of the speeches that have been translated, um, I presume, accurately. There's one he gave to CNN where he dropped a pretty big hint, and the CNN reporter asked him to, well, can you back that up? And he said... I can't remember what he said in reply, but anyway, his claim was that uh, he was being, it was 2008 and he was being asked about Georgia. And again, it was framed in the West in terms of Russia invaded Georgia. You know, we've got a hint there of the, the Soviet Empire trying to reclaim its territory. Mm-hmm. Shit, that's not what happened at all. The Georgians baited by firing missiles or shells across the border mm-hmm. into Russia. Anyway, that was abundant. Of course, that's, Putin was well aware of that. And he he said um, he said to the CNN guy, well, "What about all these stories? Well, there's something like the stories I'm hearing are that there were U.S. personnel on the ground advising the Georgians." And he, he said, "Just left it at that." Mm-hmm. You can imagine he knows more. Well, so, so yeah, right there. The point is that he's he knows <clears throat> that the wagons are circling against him. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, there are the thousands with the missile issue. Mm-hmm. NATO didn't just block in the 90s. They started putting their own... They, yeah. they effectively uh, made garrisons out of Czech Republic, Poland, and put missiles. Mm-hmm. Well, as soon as, yeah, I mean, as soon as, uh, as, soon as Poland joined the EU... In 2005, and there's a direct link, as soon as Poland joined the EU in 2005, uh, the first thing that happens is, as all the Poles leave and flood across Europe, uh, a bunch of missiles, American NATO missiles, go the other way and are established on, on uh, Polish yeah. territory, you know. So, And a serious effort is made in the West to convince all of us dummies over here that, oh, it's to protect Europe from... Oh, wait, we need a new crisis. Oh, we've got one. It's to protect Europe from Iran. Mm. And Putin, Putin was asked that once. Yeah, and he just by a journalist. Up. And he laughed. He, he just he, laughed at the naivety of the, yeah. uh, of the journalist. I mean, that's yeah. all he could do. He was just saying, thanks. You gave me a good laugh there. I mean, that's a perfect response to anybody who's looking at uh, what's been going on in the world. 
just parroting the mainstream media lies as presented to them, as given to them by the US government. And he was asking this ridiculous question when anybody with any sense knew that it was pure propaganda and lies. And uh, so he just laughed at it. But in terms of the... Uh, in the article I wrote a few few days ago about uh, Ukraine, I just got uh, something from 2009 from, from Reuters um, who quoted the head of Russia's the head of Russia's Chechen Republic, who at this stage was kind of had turned around and become more pro uh, after 2008 and 2009. This was he become Kadyrov. Yeah, he said that um, in terms of who who they were fighting against now, because the Chechens had basically the Chechen government had officially kind of made peace with the Russians, but they were still uh, faced with uh, an insurgency by someone, and he said. We're fighting in the mountains with the American and English intelligence agencies. They're not fi- they are fighting not against Kadyrov, uh, that's him, not against traditional Islam. They are fighting against the, Soviet, the sovereign Russian state. So he basically spelled out there uh, what the nature of this uh, fundy jihadi Muslim terrorist operation in, in Chechnya was. It's that it's funded and... Uh, manned by essentially agents of the American empire uh, that is bent on, on attacking Russia. Um, he said he even said that um, he was asked if, if he was saying there were signs of CIA and MI6 participation in the violence, and he said, of course, there was this terrorist guy called Chitagov. He worked for the CIA. He had U.S. citizenship. When, when we killed him, I was in charge of the operation, and we found a U.S. driving license, and all other documents were also American. So, I mean, this isn't conspiracy theory. This is, uh, I mean, for anybody who's aware of... There's a lot more to it. uh, These guys, Chechen terrorists... It's it's even in movies. I mean, it's in a few movies where part of the plot involves Chechen terrorists surfacing in Bosnia and Iraq. I mean, that's actually based on the reality of it. Um, The so-called Kosovo Liberation Army. Yeah. Completely manufactured. Mm. There was no civilian participation, national insurgency in a region of Serbia. It was a, it was the KLA. Bin Laden himself is supposedly mm-hmm. out there involved with that too. These guys are just shipped around. But right today, there are Chechens with the big long neck beards, mm-hmm. um, uh, training sixteen and seventeen and eighteen year old French, Swedish, and American kids in mm. Syria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're essentially mercenaries for for the empire type of thing that uh, prefers to engage in its in its expansion of empire in that way rather than direct military confrontation. They tend to prefer uh, using proxy armies uh, that they can distance themselves from, you know. Um, and these armies, the, the, the real uh, genius, if you want to call that, behind it is that these guys aren't officially working for the Americans. You find a bunch of nut jobs who can be whipped up on a very small group. And of the more insane, the better. Exactly, yeah. Who can be whipped up and have some, you know, crazy idea of wanting to establish some kind of a caliphate or emirate or something somewhere in a place where, you know, they have no right to do that. And where it's and never, never going to happen. And you give them loads of money and guns and uh, training, and you stir it up and you cause problems for the the host nation that they are attacking. Um, because it serves your interests, ultimately. If it's regime change or, or whatever, just to destabilize the country. Uh, generally speaking, it's about getting rid of a certain government. And as we've seen in Libya, when that doesn't work, 
effectively enough and Gaddafi and the people of Libya were strong enough to kind of uh, to repel these imported mercenaries from other parts of Africa and and the Middle East um, into into Libya when that wasn't working uh, quite as well as they expected uh, you bring in NATO bombings to officially uh, to officially impose a no-fly zone but they end up bombing the crap out of the country and effectively uh, decapitating the regime uh, or the government, let's say, the Libyan government, and installing a bunch of uh, fundy nutjobs who just run the country into the ground, as is happening in Libya today. That's yeah, the legacy. The prime minister, the puppet they installed, mm-hmm. quit yeah. three days ago. Yeah. That's how they just stable it is. <laughs> exactly. You know, so the thing about it is, is that... Um, you know, as I've been saying, Putin has uh, our understanding. Go ahead. Well, I wanted to I wanted to make sure we cover just a little bit the changes that happened within Russia. Yeah, go ahead. Before we go to how this is playing out geopolitically. So, um, in the background, it's been 14 years. He gets lampooned and criticized heavily in the West because it's obviously undemocratic to have a guy run for two terms then become prime minister and then become president again and while he's prime minister have the law changed so that the next term as president is now extended to six year terms um, so yeah he's doing what he has to do to stay in power now we're so it's hardwired into free westerners to just assume that that's, that's the root of all evil uh, is it? Think, think to what happened with Chavez in Venezuela. At every step of the way that he extended his power, he put it to a vote. Mm-hmm. And it came back in favor every time, except for once, and he accepted it. The same thing has happened in Russia. In some form or another, it's, it's either not, they don't have direct national referendum, but through parliamentary elections in between. Um, the presidential elections every time Putin has either personally won or his party has won he doesn't really have a fixed party because there have been two different alliances through the last 14 years but anyway that's okay the politics you look at on the surface and go that sounds really dodgy I mean now let's look at the actual concrete stuff the stuff that matters economically the people of Russia what do they think well, Russia lost several million people in the 90s, as in its, its, its death rate increased dramatically. Um, starvation, through a combination of starvation, the uh, average life expectancy dropping into the 50s for people, um, it was just devastated. That has turned around to the extent today, under Putin, that birth rate in Russia is now higher than in the US. Unemployment is way down. Despite global financial crisis, Russia was pretty well protected from it. Even though it has an open market economy, Putin never challenged that. He he accepted, fine, Russia is going to be capitalist. And not only are we going to be capitalist, we're going to be better capitalist than you. Um, Which is a rich irony in this. Uh, so unemployment six percent, 
compared it's something to something like six compared to the real rate of employment in the U.S. It's got to be thirty plus percent. Um, Wages went up, and yeah. he he has mass popular support, and that that can't be because they're all just brainwashed idiots. No, they're not. They're they're a lot smarter. Russians, generally speaking, are a lot smarter than uh, the average American in terms of yeah. in, in terms of being informed. Um, but he also increased the state pension uh, to the point that one of the actual attractions for people in Ukraine now with this idea of, you know, uh, in Crimea in particular, with them maybe becoming part of the Russian Federation, is that they'll, they'll get, older people will get twice the state pension that they're given by the Ukrainian government if they join Russia. Uh, they'll get twice as much. And he also passed laws where the military, as part of his kind of military overhaul, uh, military personnel, officers and soldiers all saw a, a really stark increase in their wages uh, so it's like I mean they're some of the best pay, paid uh, military personnel in the world today um, I mean and I'm not talking here about like you know uh, in the context of Russia the cost of living in Russia they're, they're getting paid like the, the, the starting wage for a, a, a soldier in the Russian army is like $2,400 a month and an officer gets you know uh, four, it goes up to four thousand and six thousand dollars a month. Mm-hmm. I mean, compare that to the kind of wages that the average American military grunt or even officers get in the U.S. I mean, it's like uh, so. <clears throat> yeah, your point is that obviously, despite all the propaganda, Putin has been doing uh, what the Russian yeah. people wanted him to do, and, and, and he's kept them happy. Uh, and he's been doing it well. It's not that. It's not that he's. Um, throwing money at them to buy them. No. He's doing this by managing fair, essentially. Um, in fact, his, his, his thesis for his economics PhD was that to enable market forces to do their work, you need what he called national champions, which is really, it's the same actually they have in France, where you've got these large, uh, originally, they're, they're private entities, but they rely heavily on the state, mm. um, the champions in, in each sector of industry. <clears throat> and that's essentially the model he brought to Russia. Bit by bit, taking it back from these oligarchs who weren't, they were in it for themselves. Exactly, exactly. He's harnessing it all to actually reinvest back into the Russian people. Exactly. His speeches, his internal speeches that he gives, again, there's no wishy-washy there. He often just gets up on the stage for a minute. Mm-hmm. and says, awesome, thank you for your support, it's great to see you all here. The goal is simple. Um, everything I do is about trying to raise Russian living standards. Thank you and have a good night. See, I'm out of here, I'm busy. Is that, is that not what Americans, many Americans actually want to see in their own government? Less interference by government, less, you know, grandstanding and, and, and you know, fancy speeches and stuff and just get on with the job of doing what you're meant to do and your results will show whether you're doing a good job or not, i.e. standard of living, quality of life, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's what Americans want, but they're being coerced by the media to demonize Putin, who's doing exactly what they all, uh, you know, want to do. And I mean, look at the results of of American, despite uh, Obama's and various different uh, U.S. presidents' um, speeches and uh, <coughs> fancy words, they, um, you've got 13 million people on, in the U.S. Uh, on food stamps. You know, that's about a quarter of the population, of the adult population. So, 
I mean, yeah. in terms of that, that that point you made earlier on about you know about Putin becoming prime minister, then president, then prime minister, then president, and being a power now for fourteen years, being the leader of Russia, let's say, in fourteen years, more or less. Um, that really shouldn't matter. I mean, it's just this idea of democracy that you know you can't have one person. In, <clears throat> I mean, it's ridiculous. The idea the idea of democracy in the West is the terms of the leaders of a country are limited to four or five years uh, to to stop them. To stop any one person from giving, becoming corrupt or becoming corrupt or becoming a dictator, but it's ridiculous because that's exactly what you have in the West, particularly in America. You just have two parties and they just keep changing and they're both one and the same. And you just have this bunch of corrupt puppets representing the corrupt uh, kind of uh, corporatists in Not the only- US who really rule the country. And it's this sham of a change every four years in the US or every eight years if it's two, two terms. Uh, that that makes people think, okay, well, we're safe from anybody ever uh, amassing, any one group amassing too much power to themselves. But that's what's behind this revolving kind of door of different faces for the presidency. You have this long-term corrupt elite in the U.S. that never changes. Yeah, and also... And, and so what I'm saying is you have the same thing in the U.S. as you have in Russia, in the sense, and it's much longer. Uh, Putin's been in power for 14 years. You've had... The people in power in the U.S. have been in power for 40 years. You know, so the point is it doesn't matter. What matters is the results, is what they do. You could have a bunch of monkeys leading a country. As far as the people are concerned, to some extent, you could. Uh, and as lo- but as long as those monkeys were implementing the proper policies that kept the standard of living at a decent level for most of the people in the country they would vote the monkeys back in uh, forever, as long as they keep doing it. I mean, just the very notion that you have to change leadership is nonsensical uh, without the context of, well, what, what's the particular leadership doing? How are they doing? You know, even, that even comes down to a dictator, a so-called dictator, you know? You can have a benevolent dictator, let's say. It's never happened, really, because dictators are synonymous with evil and corruption. But if there ever came along a person who was well disposed to the average person in the street <clears throat> and he somehow was able to maintain himself in power against all the competing influences and kept on being benevolent and treating the people in the street well, well then who would argue that that person, if they're doing a very good job, should not be there for as long as they can keep doing it? Yeah, it's Putin is there because... He's, he's the man for the job, and I think most, most Russians recognize that. It's funny, in the West, they disparage what he does by saying, for example, oh, Putin has promulgated several more... ...code, the... the Overhauled their tax code, streamlined, simplified uh, their bureaucracy, the way in which regions um, have the centralized budget handed out. He's restructured regions, um, grouping together different parts of Russia, reorganizing things. 
the more you look at it, he's done so much work and still continues to that um, it's, it's, it's not all down to just him, of course. He is, I think, one, one way you could say it, there's a certain culture that he has brought back into Russia, stabilized the place economically, politically, and got it back up on his feet. This has recovered what it lost in the 90s. And bit by bit, what we see of Putin now internationally is a reflection of the strength that has been built up within the country. I think it's no coincidence that Russia, we find Russia in a position now to say, no, we draw the line mm-hmm. here. Well, that's, I mean, that's a perfect uh, explanation of why we're seeing all of this anti-Russia and anti-Putin propaganda over the past several years because he has done that uh, to the Russian economy and, and the country and he has done it the right way and he has support of the support of the majority of the population and that is like a red flag to the empire builders in the West because they the one thing they have kind of uh, staked their claim to or made it their, their main priority to achieve since really uh, over the last hundred years, beginning a hundred years ago um, or more, was that there would be no other power in the world that would be able to stand against the American empire, essentially, as it began to develop itself at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, that was the policy, that was the idea of these kind of bankers and corporatists at the time, that was their plan to take over the entire world. And if you look at the history of the 20th century, that's pretty much what they did. Um, that's the policy they pursued. And they got very far. And to have it kind of all go a bit wrong at this point, at the, at the, at the very end when success and completion of their grand plan was so close to have uh, something like, like Russia come out of kind of nowhere in a certain sense because obviously they didn't budget very well for Russia um, so quickly remaking itself uh, it's really frustrating to them and, and they're pulling out all the stops uh, in many different ways uh, to, to thwart Russia and to put it back in its place um, we see it most notably in the propaganda war I mean one example is that homosexuality or anti-gay law supposedly, that uh, that was passed in Russia. Um, surprise, surprise, that turns out to be completely false. Uh, in the law itself, in the legislation that was passed, there is no reference to gay, homosexual, uh, LBGT, or any other, uh, you know, reference to in the legislation itself. My question is, how can you pass an anti-gay law that does not mention gays anywhere? or homosexual, the word homosexual anywhere in the legislation. People might say, well, it's kind of subtle, it's just, you know, it's insinuated in there somewhere. But, yeah, really? You think any prosecutor is going to try and, uh, you know, argue a case based on insinuation in the law? It'd be thrown out. It makes a mockery of law uh, completely, you know, the whole legal process. I mean, you can't interpret laws on on the idea that, there's hidden words in there. Well, yeah. they're there, they're not. Laws are meant to be very specific, and this law is very specific. In, um, in basically, the, the, the element, the essence of that, of that legislation was that it was a criminal offense, and it was mostly fines 
that 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 are the penalties for infringing this law, breaking this law, um, and it was the law specifies that it's an offence to misrepresent the number of homosexuals or gays of any persuasion uh, in the media or main, it's mainly focused at the media. Um, that's all it says. It says there's a certain there's statistics on the number of uh, homosexuals in Russia and anybody who goes around uh, saying that uh, or, or misrepresenting d- data, official data or statistics or any, anything related to the homosexual community, if you misrepresent it, you'll be, you'll be fined. And it's per- directed primarily at it mentions uh, quite specifically media corporations and stuff, and you can see that this is in the context of this kind of pussy riot kind of stuff and all these other kind of uh, foreign-supported uh, and funded organizations rising up within Russia that have nothing to do with the will of the actual Russian, actual Russian people and are, that, are, that are like a fifth column within the country mm-hmm. designed specifically by the West to try and destabilize Russian society. So this law specifically was just... It's just one of, of a lot of other legislation that was designed to stop that from happening in Russia, as any country would do when you start to realize that there are elements of a foreign nation, essentially, in your country trying to rabble-rouse and stir up, uh, essentially, revolution against the country. America has all sorts of laws on its books, and so the Western European nations have all sorts of laws on their books to stop that specifically happening. It's a crime in every other nation in the Western world, yet... When Russia passes, the Russian parliament, the Duma passes those kind of laws, immediately they pick on one and start and, and spread this ridiculous rumor, and that's all it is, a rumor, it's completely false, that they passed an anti-gay law, that you're not allowed to be gay in Russia. It's ridiculous. I mean, but that's the level of propaganda that we're yeah. dealing with. It's the big lie. They don't just like, kind of twist the truth a little bit. They actually make stuff up and promote it mm. so widely in the media that everybody in the West now, the majority of people in the Western world, if you ask them, about Putin or Russia, they'll say, yeah, they have those anti-gay laws, don't they? When it's a complete lie. Mm-hmm. The other thing they conveniently left out is that at the same time Putin passed, um, well, it's Duma passed, but I'm sure it might have been his inspiration, um, an anti-extremism law. And this too was re- a certain, they read into it what they wanted in the West, anti-extremism. Hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, we see what he's doing. He's doing that to go after any form of opposition. Yeah. No, it specified by anti-extremism, extremism, it was exactly that. It meant uh, specifically taking funding from foreign NGOs to agitate. Mm-hmm. You see a raft of laws passed of that nature in Russia and you wonder why. And it, it's easy to, sp- to spin it as always being dictatorial or draconian laws, etc., etc. But you can see clearly that it's designed as a response to an already existing threat within Russia against uh, the, the status quo in Russia, which is supported by the majority of Russian people. So it's completely anti-democratic what they're doing. Yet they are, what they're doing is completely anti-democratic, but they, they use the rallying cry of anti-democracy or anti-democratic means and blame, blame uh, Russia and Putin for doing it. I mean, they're essentially yeah. doing what psychopaths do, which is blame other people for exactly what, what they're, they're doing. doing. I mean, in, in France, they have hate laws, exactly the same thing. Yeah. In the US, it's, of course, illegal for any foreign entity to fund a political action committee or anything that is going to influence p- 
political persuasion. Absolutely. Any foreign funds is completely illegal and none of them supposedly have ever done it because it's such a high, high profile law and very well known. And yet, millions of dollars of, 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 or more of American taxpayer money and American government money is going directly, has been going directly into Ukraine to subvert the election process and the democratic process in Ukraine against exactly the same law in the books in Ukraine. That it's illegal in Ukraine for any foreign entity or any political, political party in Ukraine to take money from any foreign entity. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same as in the U.S. And yet the U.S. completely, the U.S. government completely uh, yeah. ignores that law and goes ahead and does it. And it's no conspiracy theory. We've seen the receipts. Absolutely. We saw who paid what to, yeah. to which far-right the NED and Mr. eBay and stuff sent money to all these, you know, democratic movements. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, they're promoting democracy in Ukraine by subverting the democratic process. That's what they're doing. And at the same time, of course, well... This is where we come to Crimea, and uh, the people are today effectively rubber stamping because we know they have popular support in Crimea to join Russia. They're rubber stamping the the local parliament has already got it on the books, mm-hmm. and this is Putin's answer to your hypocrisy. Up till now, it's been maybe some backroom deals and some he's been trying to sway others by making trade deals and now when it's come to his doorstep he's like well trade deal didn't work with Ukraine because they've got actual physical fighting forces involved in this what am I going to do so well here we are at this crossroads maybe we should talk about what else is going on in the background try to see what how we see this playing out well for a start, I just want to mention something about the many articles that I've seen of late opining on the situation in Ukraine vis-a-vis Russia and the US, etc. And these are from alternative media outlets who have a long history of uh, railing against what the Americans have been doing around the world and expanding their empire through all sorts of duplic- duplicitous and uh, scurrilous means. Uh, including, including creating civil war in countries like Syria, for example. Um, so there's these websites I've been writing on this Ukrainian situation, and they tend to be coming out with this phrase of uh, the enemy of my enemy. And their point is, that's not always true. Uh, I, the enemy of my enemy is, is my friend, is the, is the maxim, but... Uh, they're saying it's not necessarily true in this case that the enemy of my enemy, i.e. our enemy is uh, the American empire and its enemy is Putin, therefore Putin's our friend. They're saying no, that they stand against any military incursion in the affairs of another nation and therefore people should not be glorifying Putin. We're not glorifying Putin, we're just calling it as it is. They're saying, you know, they trump them up as people see him as a savior and people are being forced into this uh, division to either support the West or support Russia and that people shouldn't fall for that trap. Uh, you should stand against um, any kind of uh, military incursion or any kind of uh, draconian measures against o- other people. And they cite, um, I'm speaking specifically here, uh, as I recall it, of uh, James Corbett or the Corbett Report. Some of you might know him. And he came out with this angle criticizing Putin for his the kind of legislation that we've just been talking about 
uh, and he was decrying the lack of freedom of the press and the laws that have been passed in Russia uh, by Putin, supposedly clamping down on the media, etc. But that's completely obtuse, uh, really, if you think about it, uh, because what's missing is the context of the world we live in and the fact that we are at at the tail end of... uh, the kind of expansion of the American empire or the empire of the, of the bankers and the, the psychopaths in power that have uh, been spreading it around the world. And um, can you imagine, I'll use an analogy, you know, you live in a house uh, and you've got a family inside and there are, um, outside there's a lot of threat, a lot of threats from various types of wild animals and marauding bands of people. But they kind of disguise themselves. <clears throat> and the marauders will disguise themselves as poor old women and you know the wolves let's say that are buying at the door disguised as sheep and, and they're not knocking on your door saying let me in I just want to be friends and, and, and I'm all for freedom freedom and democracy and at the same time open society open society and at the same time the people in the house are saying well you are being a bit kind of severe in locking this place down against these people. Look, they're only sheep and little old ladies, and they just and we want an open society, so we want multiculturalism and multipluralism and stuff, or multi, uh, you know, kind of freedom of opinion and freedom of expression and new ideas coming into our house. And uh, why why are you doing this? And but that's so naive, in the sense that the people who are demanding that freedom of the press are completely unaware that these are actually wolves and marauding bands of, of kind of uh, psychopaths who want to come in and, you know, uh, destroy your house and steal everything in it and kill you all. Uh, that's the reality of the situation. And so if in that situation, what are you going to do? You're obviously going to take the necessary precautions because you understand, you see the nature of the, of the beast outside your, your door and what its intentions are, and you're not fooled by the, by the propaganda and the lies and the, the appeals to kind of, you know, can't we all be friends and just let us in? And if you've got nothing to fear, uh, if you've got nothing to hide, you know, why are you afraid? We just, you know, want to share the love and stuff. And that's what happened in Venezuela. You know, Chavez was accused of clamping down on the freedom of the press and was called a dictator uh, for banning certain stations. And people completely ignored the fact that those stations, media stations and media corporations that wanted to set up in, in Venezuela and had been set up in Venezuela, were there specifically for the purpose of spreading lies about Chavez. about Chavez, about the government, and inciting the people to revolution. And, but what he's expected to do to maintain this appearance of being not a dictator and you know, to, to, to avoid that accusation, he's meant to let them all in so that they can destroy the country. And it can get so bad that the people within your own country will demand that because they're fooled by it. They'll say, why, why are you doing this? You know, you should let these, uh, let these corporations in because they say they just want uh, to do some good for our country, and I believe them. Well, you know, I'm glad you're not president. You know, <laughs> that's why you're not president. That's why you're not in any position of authority or leadership because you cannot see the reality of the situation or of the world in which you live. You don't know the forces at work here. And these are forces that are amply documented or... Uh, the nature of these forces is, is, is amply documented and easily provable. And I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's, we're not talking about conspiracy theory here. We're talking about official track record of what these kind of individuals do, corporations and you know, agents of empire do. Economic hitmen. Exactly. Like last week. So the point is, 
any laws, in the context of the world we live in, any laws that, for example, Putin is passing right now that appear to be kind of dictatorial or draconian or clamping down on freedom of the press are probably not, not even, you can't even say that uh, they're in his interest uh, because obviously there's a threat of a backlash from the population who get fooled by uh, what they said about these laws that are, that are dictatorial and he wants to be a dictator. So it's a dangerous position to be in to pass these kind of laws. But they're obviously being passed in the context of a clear and present danger and threat to Russian society from outside. Mm -hmm. So if your goal is to keep the Russian people, for example, uh, safe and maintain the integrity of the Russian Federation against this kind of threat, well, then you will have to do what is, whatever is necessary within reason, obviously. Yeah. But you do everything you can within reason uh, and respecting the, the rights of the people, the, the real Russian people respecting their rights, but absolutely denying the right of any interlopers or any fifth column that attempts to come into the country. Exactly. Who, who wouldn't do no that? one's being disappeared off the streets in Russia. No. Uh, the rule of law is actually applied there. Um, of course, Khodorkovsky and Navalny and the others who are funded by the West and or have their own funds will cry bloody murder and exactly. say, oh my God, it's, it's happening to me, then the whole country is suffering under tyranny with me. Because yes. they're so self-centered that that's, of course, the power they that they want. I mean, when they get into power, that's how they would see things. Everything is a reflection of me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, <clears throat> what's clear to me is that Putin has been watching what the Americans have been doing, Americans have been doing in, in the Middle East for a long time and in other areas around the world in South America for a long time he's probably no uh, um, he's probably not uh, ignorant of history of the history of America and what they did in South America uh, in Latin American countries so he knows the MO the modus operandi of how they operate and he sees this happening in the Middle East and Syria he, he was very closely Russia was very closely um, involved in that and observing that situation. Well, he deserved the Nobel Peace Prize for... Exactly. He effectively, at least for now, staved off a bombing, right, war, a yeah. bombing of yeah. Syria. Yeah. So he, he knows all of this, and probably more than any of us or anybody listening can, can uh, gather from the situation based on the available evidence. Uh, he knows more because as a, as a government, as a state, the... the the apparatuses, uh, apparatus of the state and uh, the resource of the state. He's going to have a lot more, more access to info than us. To yeah. detailed information yeah. about what was actually going on on the ground. And so who, he, so who he sees, those snipers were and so on. Yeah, so he sees this coming and he sees, uh, sees it coming in, in Ukraine. He's very, very much aware of the threat uh, to Russia from, from the EU and from their... The, the, their master in, in the U.S. to uh, Russia via Ukraine, Crimea, and the Black Sea Fleet, and uh, Russia's access, commercial and military, to the Mediterranean. Otherwise, have to go halfway around the world. Uh, so he sees this coming on us, and he sees the signs of it well in advance. So none of this stuff is new. It's new to us. We get breaking news about Newlands telephone conversations and stuff, but that's, mm. yeah, you know, totally to be expected from the point of view of uh, the Russian government and they have um, you know well laid plans to deal with that 
they'd be extremely stupid if they didn't. Uh, they, they have no business being in power if they didn't uh, anticipate that. And it's obvious that they did based on the, the speed with which they responded to the situation. You know, and they're talking now about sanctions and stuff, but even that's falling on its face. You know, the EU is planning these sanctions at the behest of America, who can, you know, very easily just sit over there in the USA and say, yeah, EU, you impose some sanctions there against Russia. Of course, sanctions are a two-way street, right? You stop doing business with Russia, Russia stops doing business with you. You lose a lot of money as well. The EU is a bit uh, less uh, enthusiastic about the idea of sanctions than the Americans are, because the Americans don't have that many trade ties with with Russia, because there are 5,000 5, miles of water between them. But uh, the EU is on a contiguous landmass with Russia, right next door. It's got gas pipelines, oil pipelines, lots of ties, economic ties uh, with the Russians. And so they're talking about sanctions now. And there's one guy, um, he's a former senior European commissioner. He's one of these guys from the European Commission who makes statements on these things. And he says that we can expect tough measures from Putin in response to these sanctions. He has nothing to lose now. He says, uh, I would expect him to up the ante. And he mirrors what we're saying here by saying his plans, i.e. Putin's plans, have been long have been laid long in advance. Yeah. I mean, that's coming from a spokesperson for the EU Commission. They're, they're fully aware mm. of the nature of the situation. And yet, you have the Americans with their this cavalier attitude of, you know, we're just going to impose our will on the rest of the world. And um, it's not really working out. It's all kind of uh, up in the air. And the person with all of the cards, really, or the best hand in the situation seems to be the Russians, despite all the pomp and circumstance and bluff and bluster from EU and US officials, they're not really doing very much about it, you know? Um, so, I've got a little story here. Yeah. In terms of Russia's interests, I mean, let's assume for a second the US's main target with Ukraine from a strategy point of view was to remove Russia's Black Sea fleet from Crimea. Russia's thinking, no way. Because that is our access, easy access to the Mediterranean, right? Little headline here from December. Syria signs offshore oil and gas exploration deal with Russia. Exactly. The deal's benefits are more than economic. It was signed a month after Syria encouraged its Russian ally to explore its waters and break the oil sanctions imposed on Syria. Mm-hmm. He's directly going around the mm. sanctions they already have on Syria to go, to go that route. So it's not just to be in a position to protect Syria. No. It's to protect Russian interests interest in Syria. In terms of doing, uh, engaging in international kind of economic, oil, etc. deals with other countries. But you see, you're not allowed to do that on your own under the American Empire. It all has to pass through the American Empire first, and you get the... Whatever trickles down. Yeah, you get, the, you get the crumbs, you know? That's the way it all has to come back through the banker first, you know what I mean? You can't just go and... You know, these days, you can't just go and get, get some money and go and do some deals on your own. You have to pay with a credit card and pay fees on it, and everybody has to pay taxes on it. It has to go through the controlling uh, power, essentially, and that's what America represents with their <coughs> IMF and 
their various banking interests around the world. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as far as we're concerned, totally justified uh, in what Russia is doing because they're under attack. They have been uh, threatened and uh, an attack has been launched on many different fronts against them. This is just the culmination of it, of, of an attack that has been going on for maybe 10 years now or maybe a bit less uh, by the West against Russia. And they come knocking on the door of Russia, i.e. in Ukraine, and directly threaten their legitimate interests because they don't like the way Russia is doing things, i.e. Russia is doing things in a kind of independent, sovereign nation kind of way. You know, that strange idea of sovereignty and deciding for yourself how you're going to engage with the rest of the world? That's what they don't like. And that's why all of this is happening, and Russia's response is entirely justified, even if it includes an invasion of Ukraine. Because the point here is, what's the alternative? People like James Corbett, as I was mentioning before, and other people have kind of been Abby down, Martin, Abby Martin from RT, being down on the actions of Russia. Have they questioned if they understand the reality of the situation? Have they wondered? Have they, have they asked themselves what's the alternative? Well, obviously, the alternative is for Russia not to do what it's doing, which basically comes down to just roll over and have Ukraine and have its access to the Mediterranean, its access to international trade severely curtailed and Russia turned into a kind of vassal state of the American empire and allow the IMF to come back into Russia and devastate the country and, and you know, essentially, like you were mentioning before in the, in the 1990s, uh, kill off through various different means, starvation, etc., uh, large percentage of the population from ill health, uh, you know, lack of social services. and uh, that's, that's the alternative. So this is what people like Abby Martin and other people who have, you know, are criticizing Putin uh, or yeah. Russia... This is what this is their alternative. But see, they don't see it they that way. They haven't thought through. Well, they don't even see the world in that way. Yeah. They don't even take stock. I mean, I don't know what world they live in, or what you know what's going on inside their head. Because supposedly they're looking at the situation and they have an awareness of of the history of of the world in, in modern history and how we got to where we are today and what the nature of it is. Yet they don't apply that to the situation. They see someone standing up against that effectively. No one disagrees that the Russians are standing up against this, this march uh, of the American Empire around the world, but uh, that they don't like it because they want to take some kind of sanctimonious, you know, absolutist kind of idea that, you know, it doesn't matter what's happening in the world. Freedom of the press is, is, is paramount. If you in any way clamp down on any kind of freedom of the press, even if it's like from your enemy neighbor who wants to screw over your country, you have to let him in there in the name of freedom of the press and do what he wants to do, even if it includes a coup d'etat or a civil war in your country. You have to allow that because the, 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 uh, you know, a civil war or the destruction of your country in some way or other is a is a is a is the price we have to pay to maintain freedom of the press. That's kind of what they're saying. And it's like, are you serious? What yeah. is wrong with you? You know, I mean, really, you shouldn't even be yeah. shouldn't even be speaking on this matter. You know, I think it. How's that from the press? <laughs> <laughs> I'm cutting off the Corbett report. I'm gonna. I'm going to hack his website. <laughs> we're going to revoke your, your, your first pass. Yeah. No, we're not going to because 
you know, the propaganda, propaganda, I mean, Jesus, that word is overused so much. Let's just say the information warfare, because that captures more what it is when it comes to Russia. It's so vast. It's it's so long-term. It really, the Cold War rhetoric didn't really end. I mean, the pretending just came back out of the blue. In many respects, the, the problem the elites had was always Russia. What are we going to do with Russia? <laughs> and it, it became a problem again when Putin came to power, or whoever is behind Putin. Mm. Some combination of both. So we've got to ask if the American Empire's plans are more or less predictable based on the pattern to date. We want it all, control everything. What then are Putin's plans? Uh, I don't think you have to have any longer-term plans other than maintaining the integrity and sovereignty of your country, Mm -hmm. such as it is, and doing your best by the majority of the people in the country and opposing uh, to the greatest extent possible any attempts by any foreign powers to diminish that integrity or to take it away uh, and, and to you know diminish the, the living standard and the quality of life of the people in the country uh, who you are tasked with, 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 with caring for, looking after and, and I mean I'm not, I'm not being naive or or idealistic about you know there isn't corruption in Russia and all that kind of stuff, but in this in the context of this world and the kind of forces that are reined against that very idea of people having a decent quality of life, and that doesn't just include food on the table and a roof over your head, but access to uh, objective information uh, and data and the truth about the world in which you live and a, and a and an ability for the people to to express themselves based on on the truth. I mean, if you look at in that context, I mean, uh, the world is a hellhole uh, from that perspective, and it's been opposed progressively. Uh, that hellhole has been imposed progressively on the rest of the world by the USA. By I mean, all you have to do is look at the massive lies that they're that they're. I mean, lies will destroy the world ultimately, you know, where people live in complete illusion, you know, where, where they take, you know, take for truth a, a complete and grotesque lie and act on it and, and live it, live that out as part of that. What, what kind of future can you, can any people expect to have if that is the basis of their understanding of, of what's in their head as they're going around, completely fabricated and illusory understanding of what is happening in the world? I mean, that's setting them up for destruction. You know, so that's why we stand uh, in support of what Putin is doing, simply because, but for whatever reason, even if it's by accident or fate or whatever, uh, or history, that he finds himself in a position where he can use the fact uh, that the, the Western powers have been egregiously lying over and over again in such a blatant way. If he can use that to serve his own interests, then ultimately, because we serve the truth, then we stand uh, in support of him in the sense that he is telling the truth about the nature of this world and what's going on and what the Western powers have been doing. Yeah. It doesn't mean we're standing by to Putin and we're going to erect statues to him. Mm-hmm. 
He's just a vessel or a vehicle by accident, like I said, perhaps for this truth at this time. And it's the truth that we serve, therefore we support the truth that he is speaking. Um, something popped up on the radar recently concerning Saudi Arabia and Qatar. What is going on there? Yeah, that's kind of bizarre. Um, it ties into this discussion, though. It kind of does. Um, it seems that things are kind of shaken up a little bit in the world, coincidentally, at the same time as, uh, as this whole Ukraine and Russia thing has been going on. There was a, there's a story um, just from, I think it's from about a week ago, and I, don't, I only really found it in the... Uh, March 11th. Yeah, in the Irish Times. I love this. Saudi Arabia threatens to blockade Qatar over terrorism. And it says, Saudi, Saudi Arabia has threatened to blockade Qatar over uh, blockade Qatar by air, land, and sea unless Doha, which is the capital of Qatar, and Qatar is this tiny little state sticking out there in the Persian Gulf, um, unless it cuts ties with Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood, closes global Al Jazeera, and expels local branches of the U.S. Brookings Institution and Rand Corporation think tanks. King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia has decreed that any Saudi who fights abroad could be jailed for 20 to 30 years, and that those who join, endorse, or provide moral or material support to groups classified as terrorist or extremist will risk prison sentences of 5 to 30 years. Now, this is from a country and from a regime, a real regime, of uh, evil and corrupt, you know, uh, oil barons, essentially, masquerading as, as leaders of a patch of land that just happened to have a bunch of oil on it and who were installed many years ago by the British effectively and then you know kept in power by the US this comes from these people who have been the preeminent exporter of terrorism of jihadi terrorism around the world for the past 40 50 years maybe um, all in league with with the US essentially they're, they're like the, the US is um, you know, kind of outsourced jihadi terrorist supplier mm-hmm. for around the Middle East to keep control and to destabilize regimes and to, you know, to remake the Middle East and tweak with it here and there. Uh, this is what the Saudis have been doing and they've been funding, I mean, they've been funding the, uh, the war, in quotes, in uh, Syria. And suddenly they turn around and pass laws that outlaw terrorist or extremist uh, groups but most interesting, that's one thing that's bizarre, and they've also attacked Qatar. And the thing is, Qatar was the staging ground, along with Saudi Arabia, but Qatar was a, a staging ground for a lot of the planning and implementation of the attack on Syria in terms of arms, money, and individuals, and training. And propaganda. And propaganda. Al Jazeera. Yeah, exactly, for troops in, in, for the jihadis in Syria. Uh, so the Saudis are turning against them now, and most importantly, though, they said that they had to, that they were going to blockade them by air, land, and sea, unless they kicked out local branches of the U.S. Brookings Institute and Rand Corporation think tanks. Now, the U.S. Brookings Institution is basically the the think tank in Washington D.C. that provides most of American the American government's policies on most things. I mean, you know, Obama and those people and Clinton and Kerry and stuff, 
they don't really think for themselves because they don't know enough about no. the world. They get the memos from these guys. Exactly, because these institutions have a long history and they're staffed with researchers and political thinkers and stuff who have all these ideas and supposedly know very in a very in-depth way what's going on in the world and what best serves American policy. And they have connections, direct connections to corporations who essentially run America. So they're really the ones who direct overt American government policy. They tell the government what to do in any given situation. And they're set up in Qatar as a kind of outreach or as a subsidiary of, of the Brookings Institute in Qatar. And and that's where all the thinking and policy came, comes for, for what to do, what the Americans should do in the Middle East. And they have this little setup in, in, in Qatar. And the other one is the RAND Corporation. And the, the RAND Corporation is basically it's a think tank as well, but it's, it's kind of more oriented towards... Uh, a think tank on how you should, you know, the military aspect of it. Uh, it's basically a global policy think tank uh, formed to offer research and analysis to the United States Armed Forces. Right, so on the one hand, you have the, the, the Brookings Institute as a think tank to deal with the policy. On the other hand, you have the RAND Corporation, which is to advise the military on how to go about implement, implementing that policy that the Brookings Institute actually came up with, you know. Uh, from a military perspective. So both of these are being booted out or being told that they have to be booted out of Qatar by Saudi Arabia, which is totally... Or else. US, or else. And, and they're totally... The Saudis are totally... Supposedly, they're totally um, in line with with the US and that they've been the US is kind of like... Along with Israel, the US is policeman in the Middle East along with their, obviously, substantial oil resources. So it's very strange that this has happened and it marks a kind of a strange moving away from that kind of a very close relationship. Um, but it's, it, it ties in with, uh, with other um, events going on. Well, just before I do that, go, go on to those other events that are, that are tied into it uh, that may answer the question as to why Saudi Arabia is kicking out two U.S. think tanks out of its backyard, basically. Um, I, I immediately after reading that went to the Brookings uh, Institute website. It's called the, uh, the, the there's there are sections dedicated specifically to the Middle East. It's called the Saban uh, the Saban Center, uh, the Brookings Saban Center for Middle East Policy. So I went to the website and I read an uh, article that was released in February sometime. It's just their, their research article for February, and it says the end of Sykes Pico. Reflections on the Prospects of the Arab State System. And it is an, uh, a policy paper, essentially, from the Brookings Institute that was released just recently. And it's quite short, but it, uh, I'll just give you a few lines of it here. It says, it's talking about the Middle East, and it says, as the conflict festered, <coughs> it's talking about the Arab Spring, it says, as the conflict festered, it also prompted a broader discussion and debate over the future of the Arab State System. Dun, dun, dun. So you think Robin Wright, a journalist and scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, argues that the map of the modern Middle East, a political and economic pivot in the international order, is in tatters. He also warns that competing groups and ideologies are pulling the region apart. A different map would be a strategic game changer for just about everybody. Potentially reconfiguring alliances, security challenges, trade and energy flows, i.e. oil. And then they quote, they quote someone else, 
Lieutenant Colonel Joel Rayburn, writing from the Hoover Institution, i.e. other think tanks in the U.S. are thinking the same way, points out that the alternative may not be new states, but rather simply collapse. He says, if watching the fall or near fall of half a dozen regimes in the Arab Spring has taught us anything, it should be that the Arab states that appeared serenely stable to outsiders for the past half century were more brittle than we have understood. Mm-hmm. And Saudi Arabia is nervous. Yeah. And then the, the author of this Brookings Institute article says, this discussion touches on a key question. Will the collapse of one or several other Arab states produce a new order in the region? Hmm. <laughs> it says, goes on, it's worse, it, it gets worse. Ambitious monarchs in the 1930s and 1940s, guess who that, are, that is? House Ambitious of, House, House of Saud, of course. Challenged the order after the colonial period. The doctrine of pan-Arab Arab nationalism and Nasser's messianic leadership in the 1950s and by Saddam Hussein in 1990 again posed a threat. It says, no, it is, not it is not challenged now by a powerful state or a sweeping ideology, but by the weakness of several Arab states that seem to be on the verge of implosion or disintegration. So I'm just tying that with, I just thought it very interesting with uh, the apparent jitters that the Saudis have got about, uh, you know, we don't like the Brookings Institution or the Rand Corporation anymore, get out of here. You know, they seem to be a bit concerned maybe that this Arab Spring business, that the... Um, the U.S. has been supporting and implementing around the, around the uh, Middle East. I mean, there's not many states left. Who's next? And the, the, is it really, I mean, you know the way Bush used to hold hands with... Uh, Bandar Bush. Bandar Bush. Used to, yeah, used to hold hands with, with, the, with the ruling Saudis and stuff anytime they visit Washington. I mean, does that, was that all false? I mean, you, you mean it's, just, it's just like a, a business arrangement we have, which means that... You don't really care who's in power in Saudi Arabia, and that means that we might be kicked out. Seriously? Does this mean we can't be friends? That's pretty much what's <laughs> going on, and it seems to be to me anyway. And it's um, it could be just some real politic coming into the, you know, uh, well, it's obviously the U.S. kind of getting a bit concerned about you know state of things in the Middle East yeah. and uh, with Syria and you know shake up of the whole situation. Russia is tied into this and access to resources. And the U.S. is kind of wondering, the U.S. empire is wondering, is, maybe it's the time for, you know, before things go, go south on us here, maybe it's time to shake things up in the Middle East and install a whole new system so that we can start again and keep it under our control. Shake, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the, the background to this is a, a story from August 2013, six months ago, seven months ago. Saudis offer Russia a secret oil deal if it drops Syria. This is a story about Bandar, who, who was the head of you know, Saudi security going to the Russians last year and saying we can keep the Olympics uh, safe if you... Uh, that's all that was reported, that they said that you know, we control the Chechens and <clears throat> we can keep the Sochi Olympics safe if you do us a deal on Syria. But there was also, apparently there was also um, uh, discussions about, as the title says, a secret oil deal between Saudi Arabia and Russia, and Russia, who together produce 45% of the world's oil. That's got to scare the Americans. Absolutely. You know, notice that, that um, Putin has been accused of <clears throat> a 
new low in trade uh, statecraft by leaking those tapes of Newland's mm-hmm. plotting to overthrow the Ukrainian government. Well, that came out, that report about the Saudi-Russian deal, potential oil deal that would completely change the game for the U.S. It was leaked transcripts of a closed-door meeting between Putin and Bandar bin Sultan. Uh, and it went into some detail, you know, it had uh, big long quotes of exactly what was said between mm-hmm. them. And I can't help but think that that's got to have been leaked by the Americans or MI6 because it was released in a British newspaper, The Telegraph, by a guy who probably gets his intel from MI6, Ambrose Evan Pritchard. Yeah, absolutely. There's other stories um, just from December last year. Iraq expects Russian weapons delivery next month. So it's, as all of this is going on, the Russians are doing major deals. While, yeah. they're, while they're talking about maybe doing a, an oil deal with the Saudis, they're doing major deals with uh, the Iraqis in terms of weapons. And at the same time, the uh, Iraqi government is accusing Qatar and Saudi Arabia of waging war in Iraq. You know, Iraq's been like a wreck. Basically, since the U.S. you know brought freedom and democracy, it's been well, still bombings going on all well, the time. Well, it had more or less stabilized, but last year it blew up again. Exactly, and this is what and Iraq's now saying: it's Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Exactly. So the, you know, it seems there's an awful lot of infighting going on here, yeah. and and the old order is no longer stable, and it's largely because of what the Americans have done in terms of extending themselves, thinking God's gift to the entire world, and that they're going to remake the entire world in their image, and it's pure hubris. And this is what happens. The reality, the real politic of the situation is, when it comes when it comes down to it, is that Russia has finally uh, come of age uh, and is in a position to stand up to the West, at least to some extent, um, and a position to stand up to the Americans to some extent. But they're also being being very smart about it behind the scenes and as we well, as we talked about there's these kind of they've been planning this for a long time and we don't know all the details of what they've been planning but clearly they have a lot of cards up their sleeves and the reality of the situation is that Russia Ukraine uh, Turkey Iraq Iran uh, other countries in the Middle East Saudi Arabia uh, and the European Union are all on one contiguous landmass they're all naturally uh, in a position to do easy trade, etc., with each other. Your guy over there, Uncle you know, Sam. Uncle Sam. He just happens to be five thousand miles away over a big ocean. So, how easy would it be for people to cut them out of the loop? Well, it would. I mean, I'm sure the Americans have, uh, in their paranoia, have thought about this, but also in their. Um, delusion, self-delusion, they're missing a lot of points and they don't think it can happen and they've extended themselves so far that it's too late for them. There's no, there's no possibility of them basically reining themselves in and falling back into a protectionist, just kind of like America, the country type of thing, because they see themselves and have seen themselves for a long time as a global empire and they have this remit, they have this duty, as they see it, to, to spread them their munificence around the world as they Imagine it, but so they're far too far gone in that sense, and they will fight to the last. But the reality of the situation is turning against them. Yeah. And the reality of the situation is just basic, basic demographics, and ultimately 
the interests of people all living in, on the Eurasian landmass, all being, you know, neighbours essentially, and them slowly getting fed up with the with the influence and the input and the manipulations of the U.S. And most importantly, there being someone who has the resources, the know-how, and uh, you know the 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 skills essentially to stand yeah. up and say, "I'm willing to kind of say no to these guys." And I think that and that's Russia, obviously, and, and that I see a lot of people falling to, behind them. Yeah. Sends yeah. a signal to all the others. Yeah, I mean, these people got to understand that Russia isn't the, isn't commun- a communist state. It's not the Soviet Union anymore, like we were saying earlier on. It's a, a fully embraced kind of open market policies and, and and essentially capitalism. So there's there's nothing to be afraid of in terms of Russia uh, that you wouldn't be afraid of uh, about America, uh, and much less in the sense that Russia isn't showing any signs right now of wanting to dominate the world or take America's place. It's simply saying enough of this empire bullshit let's <clears throat> let's do a deal guys you know there's nothing to stop us America's full of bluff and bluster what's it going to do send a couple of aircraft carriers over the 5,000 miles of ocean you know really it's going to launch some nukes seriously I mean let's call the bluff and I think there's moves on at the minute <clears throat> not that it's all benevolent or well-meaning in the sense that all of these Middle Eastern states and stuff and European Union are all vying for position, they're jostling for position as things shake up a little bit. But ultimately when the, when the, when the kind of chips fall, it's not looking good for the Americans. No. They've overextended themselves, you know, really. I yeah. mean, and that's the, the classic problem of empires throughout ages, right? They just keep going and going. I mean, it's, it's impractical. Impractical to think it, that you can have a seat of power. Yeah. And a landmass, you know, thousands of miles away from where you're trying to impose this hard and rigid set of rules on, on people thousands and thousands of miles from where you actually, um, from where your power emanates, you know? I mean, that's a recipe for disaster and has been repeatedly throughout history. And so just, you know, watch it happen. Um, are we going to say something on... Uh, are we going to say something on... Because, uh, not Yugoslavia, Malaysia. Malaysia? Um, airlines? Malaysia God, airlines. that is so weird. Flight. Where did it go? Where did it go? Finally, now they're saying, as you probably noticed, that it did. That the, the information that it flew on for five more hours is pretty much accurate because they had this, the, these data pings from the... Parts of the aircraft. Parts of the aircraft, the engines, whatever, were saying that it was still aloft. And the last one they got after five hours, after its last known official position, was uh, it was still 35,000 feet. This plane turned around and went somewhere else and kept going even after the five hours because it had, it had, you know, 12 hours, fuel for 12 hours. But it's just, this is just speculation. Based on one of the many trajectories... And it's not going to be the be-all and end-all either, but anyway. <laughs> one of the many project- trajectories that it could have taken seems to have pointed it because it was pointing, according to one source, to west, south, well, kind of southwest from where okay. it was, and directly southwest within five hours. In fact, at the time when the last kind of ping was given, uh, about five hours from its last official known position is the island of Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. Diego Garcia is... a a really complex and scary uh, U.S. military base handed to it by the British about 30 years ago. 
after the British obviously, you know, removed the 2,000 local islanders and kicked them into slums in the Seychelles, where they're all living in poverty now. But that's the British for you. It's basically an island with a base on it and nothing else. Can you imagine with no prying eyes what they get up to? Absolutely. But it's, it's, there's all sorts of stuff on them. There's, there's several different kind of detachments of various U.S. naval and military uh, operations based on that, as they have them in various other places around the world. And one of them is, um, well, in the naval support facility in Diego Garcia. Well, there's two, actually, that are interesting to me. One is the Space Operations Squadron, and the other one is the, the 22nd Space Operations Squadron and the 18th Space Surveillance Squadron. And they have these giant radar arrays and telescopes that <clears throat> apparently provide direct support to some U.S. Inc. spaces, which is another back-at-home U.S. military uh, kind of space observation operation. Uh, they, they provide direct support uh, to that control mission through optical space surveillance. This includes detection, tracking, identification, and special signature collection of near space and deep space objects, in particular satellites. Okay. So basically the impression you get from this place, of course a lot of it's hidden and top secret and all that kind of stuff, but the impression you get from this place is that it's packed full, you know, high-tech gadgetry belonging to the U.S. Navy and the U.S. military and its various different uh, subdivisions. Because uh, there's, obviously there's naval, there's a naval yard there and they station boats and stuff there. But there's this very strange um, space observation squadron, space surveillance squadron. Um... And it's for tracking satellites. And uh, among other things, but supposedly satellites are a major... major um, so what I'm saying is there's loads of ga- gadgets there, and uh, based on what we know from 9-11, planes can be remotely... Uh, remotely hijacked. Remotely hijacked and flown to wherever they want, and this plane was heading in that direction. Uh, and there's a station there that plausibly could have that kind of uh, technology. It's probably not... Uh, that kind of technology isn't very advanced at this stage. It's probably run-of-the-mill type stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. But that obviously leaves open the question of why would they do that, you know? But, um, well, I could t- toy with the idea that it was assigned to the Russians. We can hijack any plane, anytime, absolutely, anywhere. Therefore, this became the headline news and Ukraine sort of took a backseat. Yeah. The missing plane, the missing plane, everyone's talking about it, so... You have to wonder. There could be a few things that work there. Hmm. That kind of just about wraps it up, I think, for this week. Um, that's our news from the inside, from inside our heads. <laughs> With token conspiracy theory With token thrown conspiracy in. Theory at the end. But yeah, it's still all, all to see in the, on the Malaysian uh, Airlines plane, but it's really bizarre. And it's really bizarre. And really bizarre things are happening, really strange things are happening on the planet right now. And it's a real kind of show. And it should keep everybody entertained and nobody should be getting into any kind of doom and gloom because, you know, all things come to an end and new things begin again and it's and you can learn a lot in the process, you know. Um, exactly. So the U.S. empire will end and it looks like it's coming apart at the seams absolutely. before our eyes. Absolutely. Enjoy the show. Yeah. So thanks to our listeners and to our chatters. Uh, we'll be back next week 
but that has yet to be announced. Topic? But keep your eyes on the pages and we'll see you then. Have a good one, everybody. Goodbye.